This is an ABC podcast. And this trio, the poet, the painter and the forester, bringing together the great disciplines of the humanities, of the arts and of the sciences, took on the biggest cohort of developers, international businessmen, politicians. It seemed like a David and Goliath kind of context. When activists tried to save the reef, they started small. You're listening to Off Track with Anne Jones, today coming from the Great Barrier Reef off the coast near Mission Beach in Queensland. Now taken together, you can see the Great Barrier Reef from space. It's huge. It's paradise. It's warm waters host biological displays of beauty beyond the imagination of landlocked individuals like me. And if you're interested in reef conservation, why not try our special citizen science project for Science Week this year? It's called Virtual Reef, and you're going to get to help scientists identify what's happening on the reef right now. Go to virtualreef.org to participate and take a virtual dive to the Great Barrier Reef. These days, the reef is both World Heritage listed and much of it exists within a national park. But it wasn't always that way. And Greg Borschman travelled north to find out more about the history of conservation activism for the reef. For a good 30 or 40 years, it's been an article of faith that the Great Barrier Reef is a wonder of the natural world, a biological treasure to be protected, not exploited. But it wasn't always so. And, like most impossible dreams, the campaign to save the Great Barrier Reef had a modest yet ultimately audacious birth. 47 years later, we're visiting that birthplace, Allison Reef, 70 nautical miles south of Cairns, a 90-minute cruise offshore from Mission Beach. It's a window into the future as much as the past. We've just boarded the tourist boat MV Coral Seeker, a 50-foot west coaster, at the Perry Harvey Jetty at Clump Point. Morning, everyone. Morning. Where are we off to? The reef. Right, it's 9.30 in the morning, and it's the most glorious day on the reef. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I've got the skipper here with me. Yeah, uh, Alistair Pike, yep, yeah, from Coral Sea Cruises. And you're lucky enough, you people don't know this yet, but you're our very first tour. Where are we going? And you said it was a special place. Why is this a special place? Well, Ellison Reef was the battleground for the salvation of the Great Barrier Reef. Very, very significant. Back in the 60s, a mining company applied through the mining warden at Innisfail to start dredging the reef to turn it into fertiliser for cane paddocks and cement, uh, which was absolutely terrible. Not sure I can get you in close enough with this vessel, but if I could, you can actually still see the gouge marks where they ploughed it in years ago. I've been here since I was a kid, in fact, but was certainly aware that this was happening, and I certainly did see the exploratory dredges out on Ellison Reef at the time. Obviously there was a very strong strong action formed at Ninny Rise that was the headquarters, Ninny Rise, and the, the battle to save the reef was on. So it's a very, very significant area historically, this one. This particular reef, Ellison Reef. 
I think you've got to remember there was a different sort of mindset back then too as well. Everything was there to be exploited. We had a fairly full-on development orientated government in the Bjocky peterson government of the day and, uh, mate, if they couldn't drill it, mine it, chop it down or whatever, they really didn't want to know about it. And, of course, the move was on not just for the limestone and the lime or the lime recovery off the reef, but also there was very serious rumblings about drilling for oil on the reef. The fact was... Back then, you know, I think people were possibly a little bit more naive, probably thought that it would grow back or something like that, but certainly not the case. So, yeah, I think now when you look at the wonderful job these people did in bringing this to world, not just Australian-wide attention, but world attention, it was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And thanks to these people now, we still have this wonderful piece of nature sitting out there. It's a smooth kick out to Ellison Reef, an isolated outlier of coral inside the main body of the barrier reef. Not all that much further east, we see breakers and haze, a line of surf crashing on the main reef structure. It's near enough to mid-tide when we anchor, and you can stand on the Ellison Reef flat. It's about a metre underwater. In 1967, Mission Beach artist John Bust spotted a small public notice placed by a local cane farmer with dreams of mining this very reef flat. On board the coral seeker and about to don his snorkelling gear, historian Ian McKelman explains how a local campaign to save Ellison from limestone mining ignited the battle to protect the entire Great Barrier Reef. What we're seeing here, it sounds like a small incident, but it's an incident which instantly begins a war. And that's because everybody was gearing up. The developers and the government had a plan a very substantial plan to mine the reef. They'd already secretly zoned large sections of the reef for mining. They'd already lined up six companies, this wasn't known, to do this mining testing. And this little incident here at Ellison was just the beginning of a grand movement. You mentioned John Bust, a local bohemian artist who used to live on Badara Island, moved onto the mainland at Mission Beach in the 1950s. John Bust was part of an eclectic collection of characters. They were an eclectic bunch. They were really members of a Wildlife Preservation Society of Queensland, which had been founded a, a couple of years earlier by Judith Wright, who was one of our great poets and a passionate environmentalist. And Bust was a, he was a ratbag, self-declared ratbag rogue. He loved calling himself the bastard from Bingle Bay. But he was a shrewd, very shrewd, very clever guy, knew a bit of law, and an extremely good lobbyist with great connections. His best buddy was Harold Holt, at that time the Liberal Prime Minister of Australia. They actually skin-dived together and they had a little house, the Holts, just round the corner from Bingle Bay. He actually went down to Canberra and buttonholed Holt and said, come on, Harold, you've got to save this bloody reef. And got an extraordinary commitment out of him. He did. He did. Harold Holt said, look, it's a difficult situation. I've got to deal with the Queensland government, but I will promise you this, that if the Queensland government starts to mine the reef or starts to attack the reef, I will come in and bring the federal parliament behind me. It was an incredible commitment. Sadly, very soon after that, he died. They had to start all over again. It was one of the many setbacks that they had. So what exactly is Allison Reef and how did it get there? I asked Dr Charlie Verin. He initially dived on Allison more than 40 years ago. 
the first marine scientist to work full-time on the Great Barrier Reef. Well, coral reefs are the very, very strange places that live on the interface of the sea, the air and the land, where they all come together. So it's a pretty hostile environment for any non-coral reef organism. But the thing that's special about a coral reef is that all it needs is sunlight, air and seawater. This is what a coral lives on. Sunlight, seawater and air and nothing else. This here is a reef that's several thousand years old and it's been built up by corals who have created the ecosystem that allows them to exist. That ecosystem has lots of fish that eat the algae and allow the corals to live. So it's another example of the miraculous symbioses that exist in the oceans. What's not widely known are the links between this battle for the reef and the adjacent tropical rainforests along the North Queensland coast. The rainforest campaign started first in the early 1960s and should have been easier. For example, mining wasn't the big stumbling block that it was on the reef. But eventually, the Great Barrier Reef was placed on the World Heritage List in 1981, six years before logging was finally banned in the wet tropical rainforests. Dr Len Webb was John Buist's ally in both battles. Here's historian Ian McKelman again talking about Len Webb. His mother was a cook and his father a stockman. He had taught himself, and he'd gone to night school, eventually gone to university, got himself a PhD in ecology, one of the first in this country. And Len Webb was a great friend of Boost's, and he joined Judith Wright. And this trio, the poet, the painter, and the forester, bringing together the great disciplines of the humanities, of the arts, and of the sciences, took on the biggest cohort of developers, international businessmen, politicians. It seemed like a David and Goliath kind of contest. Given those rather high and unequal stakes, the battle for Ellison Reef was oddly short-lived. It was over within a year. Simply, Ellison wasn't a dead reef. That was proved in late 1967 by Dr Eddie Hegel. He and his penniless marine science mates at the University of Queensland had been approached to do a survey of Ellison Reef by John Bust. He went around to the University of Queensland, also the University of Sydney, met with various eminent scientists, and none of them wanted to become involved. Our group, of course, were not eminent. We were just young, mostly postgraduate students, but we had an awful lot of experience at doing the sort of surveys that John wanted. We had actually saved the reefs, the coral reefs around Peel Island and St. Helena and Goat Islands in Moreton Bay, which were live coral reefs that had been proposed for mining. And we'd actually done that for the Queensland government the year before we went up to Ellison. <laughs> so we were taken out in two little tiny homemade boats that were unsafe at any speed, I think. And we stayed in those boats on the reef for five days and surveyed the reef. We found it was perfectly normal coral reef. We had over 200 species of fish and 90-something species of coral. And, you know, it was a very typical reef for that portion of the barrier reef. The proponent had decided it was dead on the basis of the area he wanted to mine was on the reef flat, which is the part that's exposed at low tide and normally has only a very small amount of live coral on it. And that area, of course, contained a lot of coral sediment. And if you mine in those sort of areas, as we've seen in, since in Southeast Asia, you get big sediment plumes so that the damage extends well beyond 
well, well beyond the immediate area being mined. As a young research scientist, Charlie Verin first dived on Ellison a few years later, in the early 1970s. He agreed with Eddie Hegel, but he's not so sure what we'll see today. I'm particularly interested to come out here because it's these reefs have got corals on them that were the dominant coral in when I first saw it, is going extinct on the Great Barrier Reef because of all the damage that's been done to the inshore. And so I'm pretty keen now to see if I can find these, it's a branching Montiporas, whole group of them, and uh, see if they're here because they've, they've disappeared everywhere I've been. So that's why I'm here and that's what I'm keen to see. Charlie Verin, I better let you get your tanks on. Good, thanks Greg. He's not with us today, but two years ago, Eddie Hegel went back to Ellison Reef to celebrate the 45th anniversary. The weather made diving difficult, but Hegel was surprised and pleased with what he saw. Overall, the coral cover was probably only about 15% less, and the fish species were maybe 10% fewer. But the same, there was still quite a lot of fish around, and it was in you know pretty good condition. So I was pleased to see that, but certainly since... We've seen a review of the reef-wide monitoring program that's been carried out over the last 28 years. This has been a program that was developed when the World Heritage Area was declared. We had to have some way of monitoring the health of the largest system of coral reefs in the world. So roughly 10% of the reefs on the Barrier Reef were selected throughout the reef region to be studied as often as possible. So from 28 years of data, what we've seen that was so startling was a 50% decline in coral cover, 50.8. So I was, guess, one of the fortunate people because I did surveys for the zoning plans for the Barrier Reef Marine Park. I've probably seen, well, at least 350 reefs anyway, and I guess I saw it when it was so much better than today, but that has been primarily due to cyclone damage and crown-of-thorn starfish. There are obviously a range of issues threatening the reef, but are climate change and water quality the two biggies? Yeah, and they are our key issues. What we now know is that the biggest single impact has been the high cyclone frequency, in particular in the last decade, where we've had actually... Historically, probably fewer cyclones, but the ones we've had have been quite intense, category three, fours, and fives, and that's what really does the damage, where you get intense winds, huge amounts of flood water flushed off the coast, carrying sediment from agriculture and urban runoff. All of the sediments contain higher levels of nutrients than occurred prior to European settlement, uh, and with dissolved inorganic nitrogen and phosphorus, well, with nitrogen, it's like a six-fold increase estimated since European settlement and a nine-fold increase in phosphorus overall through much of the reef region. And uh, those impacts on seagrass beds and coral reefs, and that's our great concern. And when you get the high sediment loads carried out into the waters with nutrients, it also seems to create perfect conditions for crown-of-thorn starfish outbreaks. Judith Wright was well aware of the pollution and problems, but she also saw something else. The pressures on its future remain heavy, but the counter-pressures have proved stronger, though its brilliant waters have been dulled and darkened here and there by unwise and greedy uses and human and industrial forms of pollution. 
the Great Barrier Reef is still the closest most people will come to Eden. The closest we would come to Eden. Those are the words of the late poet Judith Wright in the 1996 foreword of her book The Coral Battleground. She's talking about the Great Barrier Reef, that immense structure covering 348,000 square kilometres off the Australian east coast. You're listening to Off Track on RN with Greg Borschman reporting from Allison Reef, about 90 minutes offshore from Mission Beach in Queensland. Basically my whole life's revolved around the water in the Mission Beach region. It is my home and it is my, it is my spiritual home. As a youngster, our skipper Alistair Pike worked for Perry Harvey. Perry was an outspoken and much-loved figure on the reef. Apart from the Hales family running out to Green Island from Cairns, Perry's credited with pioneering some of the first commercial tour trips to the reef in the late 1960s. Perry Harvey mainly visited Beaver Cay, 10 kilometres to the south of Ellison Reef. Alistair Pike remembers those early days well. When we first came to live here, Mum and Dad bought land off Perry Harvey and Perry was fantastic. When I was a kid, he must have got sick of my face going out in the boat when I was a little nipper. But certainly he never lost patience, he was great. I helped out a little bit as I got older. You've got eight children, the youngest is eight years old. What sort of reef is your daughter, your youngest child, going to inherit? I have got no idea, Greg. I have honestly got no idea. I'd like to think that she's going to be able to go out there and see dolphins, whales, turtles on the reef, all that sort of stuff, the fishes, the the vibrant colours that we have seen. Again, I'm reflecting through older eyes. I mean, when I used to go to Beaver Cay with Perry when I was a kid, it was just like a living garden. It was, uh, but, but again, you're seeing it through kids' eyes. Cherry Muddle is the second generation of reef activists since those early days. She's the Great Barrier Reef community campaigner for the Australian Marine Conservation Society. The AMCS grew out of the Australian Littoral Society, which Eddie Hegel helped found in 1965. So Cherry Muddle is very aware of the fight for Ellison. Well, to be honest, before I went snorkelling on Ellison Reef, I wasn't actually expecting to see very much at all. Because I had that idea in my head that it was claimed a dead reef, I thought, well, surely there must be a reason for that. It might look physically not as bright or colourful as other reefs I've dived on. But as soon as I went snorkelling, Ellison Reef far surpassed my expectations. I saw purple and blue branching corals, rainbow parrotfish and brilliantly coloured clams. I also saw the biggest giant clam I've ever seen in my life. And I took a big deep breath and dived down to lay beside it and I was just overwhelmed with admiration. It really moved me. It was extremely personal connection. It really cemented in my heart and mind exactly what I'm fighting for, not for myself, but for every single person around the world. And to see the very beginnings of reef protection and conservation was absolutely awe-inspiring. When those campaigners back in the 1960s were fighting to save the reef, they wouldn't have imagined that that same fight would be going on 50 years later. No, certainly not. And in some ways, it's deeply frustrating to feel that we're back to where we were 50 years ago, although so much has changed and there's been so many great advancements in reef conservation and management. I feel like we've stepped back in time because of the current proposals now planned along the Queensland coast and the entire Great Barrier Reef is under threat yet again. 
Almost 20 years ago, Judith Wright was clear-eyed and prescient about the future. To me, it's a kind of miracle that things have gone so well for the Great Barrier Reef. But I know that its survival is owing to a great deal more than luck and circumstance. Luck there has been, but disasters in the shape of weather, accident and climate change lie ahead. Charlie Verran is the former chief scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science, so his views are hugely respected in the marine world. He didn't find any of the velvet branch or velvet finger coral that he was looking for today on Ellison. He says it's disappeared from most, if not all, inshore areas. And he paints a sobering picture of future climate change. Ocean acidification will affect every coral reef in the world. It has certainly been deeply involved in most of the catastrophic events that have happened to coral reefs that geologists have revealed. Ocean acidification is just about the only thing on this planet that can destroy coral reefs on a global scale. Are we looking at a long, slow decline, or will there be a series of cataclysmic losses? I think the latter. What will happen is that we can have El Nino events, and all we have to have is one deep El Nino, such as I believe is coming this year, and clear blue skies, so the temperature of the water will go right up. So when those two things come together, if they come together, we will have, we could have mass bleaching on every reef from one of the Great Barrier Reef to the other. And that could wipe out corals on the, at least all but deep water corals within a few months, all in one hit. That's unlucky to occur, but that depends on the vagaries of the weather. It doesn't depend on anything else. The stage is set for that to happen. Nevertheless, marine scientist Dr Eddie Hegel remains hopeful. So what sort of reef does he think Australians will inherit in 2100? That depends very much on our actions in the next few years. There's certainly a major plan to try and reduce human impacts on the reef from flooding, from these sediment loads, and of course we have to come to grips with the impact of dredging from the huge amounts of dredging spoil that are generated in these new harbour developments. But it's really hard to predict. It takes a bit of luck. We need a bit of respite. If we had a long drought and fewer cyclones for a few years, that would certainly help the reefs recover. There is a, you know, a natural resiliency to the reefs. There's some recovery. It's just uh, that they're being hit from all directions at the moment. And uh, the future isn't bright, but it's possible we'll succeed if governments are willing to spend the money. Back at Clump Point Jetty, I asked Skipper Alistair Pike for his final thoughts. Well, certainly the odd battle has been won, but is the war ever going to be over? I don't believe it will. I mean, we obviously have the major issues of global warming, these coal port expansions, unfortunately fertiliser and farm runoff development just in general, really. You know, the reef that I see nowadays really doesn't look as good as it used to, and I'd, I'd, I'd be lying if I said otherwise. It's a shame because obviously we have agriculture as a major economic base here in the Cassowary Coast. Most of the farmers utilise the reef, they love fishing, they love diving, so they're aware of the problems. They are trying to tidy up what used to happen, there's no question of that, but certainly the war is still on and it's being fought on many fronts as far as I see it, and uh, if I died tomorrow I would say, is the reef safe? Well, possibly not, and I don't think you have to be a rabid environmentalist to acknowledge that either. I think you've just got to be a realist that it is still under, under threat from many fronts. Acidification, global warming, overfishing. I mean, having said that, I run fishing charters too as well for a living, recreational charters. 
we try to be very good custodians, but every fish you take out is one that's less on the reef too as well, so you, you have to face that reality as well. In a story as fraught, hopeful and contested as the future of the reef itself, it's perhaps wise to leave our final words to poet Judith Wright, written four years before she died in 2000. The reading is by Susie Smith. She's secretary of the Cassery Coast Hinchinbrook branch of the Wildlife Preservation Society of Queensland. The battle for the reef will never be quite over. That splendid stretch of the northeastern coast of Australia is an enrichment of human experience, of the beauty of the world that is without parallel. The battle for the reef stands to the credit, not just of Australians, but the whole human race. Greg Borschman reporting from Allison Reef in North Queensland. I've put links on the Off-Track website to lead you to more information on the topic of the reef and the history of its conservation. And remember our virtual reef diver project as well, where you can help scientists by going on a virtual reef dive and identifying what you see. Go to virtualreef.org to have some fun and dip your virtual toe in the ocean. I'm Ann Jones. Wash your bathers out now and make sure they dry properly because next week we might be needing them. That's when I'll take you somewhere else.